Hello, and welcome to The Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly why fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. In this episode, we're discussing N.K. Jemisin's novel, The Fifth Season, the first book in the Broken Earth trilogy. The world is about to end yet again, and then we follow various timelines and characters as they learn the history of their world and uncover shitty slash oppressive power dynamics at work. Let's get into it. A little bit of little bit of self promo here at the top. If you could do us a favor and leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. Initial reactions. I really enjoy the saying that you hear like all the time in library school, a book for every reader, meaning there is a book that will fit the taste of each reader because I love the flip side of that, which is that every book will not be for every person. This book was not for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's so diplomatic. It felt so slow and meandering and the use of the three timelines that the reader doesn't realize is one person seems unnecessarily confusing. Also, this book gets so much hype that if it hadn't, I don't think I would have been so disappointed with it. Like, people really talk this book up, and then I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, that can be an issue, like, when it wins a bunch of awards and stuff, and that's used as the hype to sell it. Yeah, and then everyone on Goodreads is like, this book is fantastic. <laughs> the So the fifth season, actually the entire trilogy has been on my TBR for a few years now, ever since I started researching like science fiction and fantasy for my doctoral work and getting back into these genres that I had read when I was younger and then left behind for like capital L literature, like fuck that. Um, and so I read a bunch of like dead white guys for a while and then, <laughs> I don't know, the... So that then I started getting back into SFF or science fiction and fantasy and then realizing that, yeah, there are a lot of people who aren't dead white guys who have written this for like ever. Um, and N.K. Jemisin is one of the big, you know, names of, you know, for black authors in science fiction and fantasy right now. And in the past, I would say probably like 15 years. Um, so the writer nerd part of myself really liked this book because Jemison's writing voice and style are like next level good. I just really enjoyed the tech. I was like reveling in the like technical sophistication of the writing. Um, My nerdy self, the world building I thought was fascinating because it's so different from other like apocalypse esque stories because the world has ended various times and not just once. Um, But that all that said, like not going to lie, reading this book felt a bit like homework. Um, And Jesse and I were talking before recording that, uh, like we have a lot of like more intellectual thoughts and feelings about it, but like less like visceral emotional connection to the characters. And like, I don't know, like where your stomach flips because something happens or, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like I didn't have any of that. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I'm curious about the story. So I might read the other two books in the trilogy, but like on my own, I don't think we're going to get Jesse to read another book in this, in this series. I will not. (laughs) I refuse. (laughs) Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. Okay, there's a lot of world building going on here. And I'm going to start with like the last thing I wrote by saying that the world building, because of the three different converging timelines, felt a bit off kilter to me. Like it would have been easier to understand the world in chronological order with Demaya learning about living in the fulcrum and being an origin. But instead we learn about that experience in bits and pieces throughout the story, which made it more difficult to follow along. I didn't really feel the need for these three converging timelines. Like I don't think it added to the story in any way to have it told to the audience in this way, because like our characters who turn out to be one character (laughs) don't really have this sense of confusion about the world in a way that made it necessary to tell the story in this way so I felt it was a little confusing to have the three converging timelines and then we find out at like the very end even though like maybe two-thirds of the way through I knew at least Demaya and Cyanite were the same person um I don't know what did you think about this timeline situation I agree with you in that it was the like fragmentation was obviously a choice 
but it didn't help me as a reader understand what was going on any better. In fact, it was disorienting to me as a reader. And so if that was the point, all right, you like that's been achieved. Achievement unlocked. Um, I think I would have connected more emotionally to this character having if I had known that there was the same character throughout the whole time, you know? Um, and then it's like, I, I guess maybe that's the case for reading the rest of the trilogy, but I don't know. Yeah, I imagine the rest of the trilogy can't be told from these three different, <laughs> because that would not make any sense. Well, because we got, at the end, we got the Stone Eater Hoa's perspective. Well, I think Hoa is the perspective for the whole time that we are with Esun, because Hoa is telling the story and talking about you. Like, I think it's a, him writing about Esun. Oh my God. This is such yeah, a exactly. mind fuck. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't really know why. And and I think that part will become more apparent. Like I'm fine with Hoa telling the entire story, but I don't because we only see it from probably the perspective of the time that he's watching as soon for whatever reason. Right. But I don't know. That part was, I just like did not understand the converting time, like why they did it in this way. Mm -hmm. Probably like maybe like in the beginning of the reading, like when I was reading it, I I watched The Witcher last year and spoiler alert that has converging timelines like one of them is going back way further and the other like their them timelines are meeting. Whoops. <laughs> My alarm just went off. <laughs> Wake up, Jesse. I know. Um because I normally don't get up until noon. <laughs> you are on break. Um, you deserve it. I'm on break. Um but in that show the stories converge but it made sense because like we're getting two different people's stories, but because this is just one person, I just didn't understand the need for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just confused me. Yeah. It, it, it didn't have this like automatic connection with the um, like protagonist that you would have if it were like told in first person, for example. Yeah. And I think because we don't start with Demaya, who's like learning about the world. And I feel like this is, you know, oftentimes in fantasy, it's a, you know, pretty linear, linear story. Um, we don't get to like learn about the world in the same way because Esun obviously already understands how the world works and Demaya is just learning how the world works. But because we're not, because we see bits and pieces and I don't feel like we get that much of Demaya, we don't like learn along with her as she learns about origins and learns about the world. And that makes it a little difficult to follow along because then the world building is kind of like very disjointed. Yes. Other world building news. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The people live in a world that's decimated by the overuse of natural resources. And there are natural disasters that have to be controlled by magical beings because of it at least i think that's how the seasons work (laughs) yeah so the i found the appendix too late (laughs) i didn't have an appendix because i listened to the audiobook i didn't even know there was an appendix Appendix one a catalog of fifth seasons that have been recorded prior to and since the founding of like it's from most recent to oldest so this is like in reverse chronological order and it tells you that the fifth seasons are like all the times the world has ended basically right. for various reasons and volcanic eruption, uh, shake, earthquakes, hotspot eruption beneath a great lake, uh, mining accident, volcanic eruption. I'm just like looking through and seeing what the mm-hmm. causes were. It tells you like the cause and then it goes into like the location and it's kind of, uh, more like his like quote unquote historical paratextual elements. You can bet that I put some shit about this paratext in the kill your darling section. Um, so all of these <laughs> different seasons are named. They're named like wandering season, madness season, fungus season, the season of teeth, breathless season. So it was like this massive chronological and like total overhaul. You're not in anything even close to a world that is recognizable for us really. So I think that is another part that makes the world building challenging. And then you get it in this disjointed way. Um, and then also there's a there's an appendix with a glossary of all of these different like things. Like what a, what a breeder is and what a coaster is and what a crush is and what ash blow hair means and what the Sansa is and Seventh University and a use name. I was really confused by the use name stuff. Like there's just so much world building that you have like 
a pages long glossary of of stuff to explain it and that makes it a little bit I think less accessible and immediately like engrossing as a reader yeah which I think brings me to like a different point which there seem to be a lot of different groups of people slash beings and I wasn't sure how they all fit together but if I had had the glossary although it being in the back isn't really helpful because I wouldn't have noticed until I finished reading (laughs) Um, maybe we need to like flip through our books what I'm so scared about getting spoilers that I never like look to the back of the book (laughs) you I have a confession I used to read the last page of the book. You would. <laughs> Kelly loves Growing a spoiler. Up. Oh my god. Not anymore. Sometimes I'll read the last sentence. Oh my god. What? Anyway, we're talking about a book. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, glossary would have been really helpful because I didn't understand how all the groups of people fit together. Some of the things I felt like I could figure out like obviously through like context clues, mm-hmm. but like but some of it, I was just like, I don't know what this means. Like, what is going on here? I think that's can also be like the hard part of not doing it in chronological order because, like, as Demaya learns these like different groups of people because she's coming into um, contact with all these different people at school from all over the place. It seems like at least like we don't learn that with her, so that makes it also more difficult. I think as the reader, absolutely, it was confusing. <laughs> this whole section this whole episode i'm not sure we will elucidate or slash reveal any new things but i don't know it's fun to talk about anyway yeah (laughs) i guess my last thing in world building is like the changes in the stone lore so the stone stone lore seems to be like their account of events of like how the origins came to be like it's their origin story like a like <laughs> sacred text basically yeah no pun intended but i really appreciated like the discussions between like alabaster and cyanite about how alabaster is like no this is how it really happened and cyanite's like this isn't what they teach us because i took this to be like how we get different interpretations of religious texts throughout time and how those things change and how the moral of stories change um, as our society has new morals uh, and different views on things. So I thought that part of the story was really interesting. And I would have liked more information about those background stories. <laughs> but alas, it did not happen. <laughs> no, it did not. It is relegated to paratext in the back of the book. Yeah, well, now I know. I will break out my ebook and maybe look at that. <laughs> but probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. So the origins are the magical beings. Maybe they have magic over earth and earthquakes and other elements too. They seem to be controlling the fact that these seasons are happening in small amounts or something. Like like alabasters like controlling these huge ass earthquakes at all times and then there are like these people who like live at the notes are actually children who have been kidnapped and are like and operated on and I, I it was a lot <laughs> but I also am not really sure what the extent of their powers are <laughs> it reminded me of earthbending from Avatar the Last Airbender oh my god oh, of course. stop it <laughs> you're so mean not really um So, like, being able to understand what's going on in the Earth and, like, its physical disturbances and being able to, like, control the power, but that you have, like, a a circumference, like a radius, but they called it a torus because making up new words for things is apparently, like, how world building happens. Um, And that, like, gets cold when they use their Earth powers or their orogeny. Orogeny? How is it? Orogenies. Orogenies. Um, yeah. So um, it seemed like you could do a lot of things with it. Um, and then we see, we do see the the character learning through, like when it's Demaya and Cyanite, we see those, <laughs> those stages of this character learning more extent of their powers, like not just earthquakes, not just like 
raising this big thing out of the earth. Turns out there are like obelisks that are made out of different kinds of stones that are like floating around places and Demaya slash Asun slash Cyanite controls them or has an affinity for them. <laughs> and so does Alabaster. And so does their kid, mate. Their kid. Yeah. Asun's I think kids. all of I think all the kids, all yeah. of her kids, all of her kids can do that. Whoever their parents were. Yeah. Um, her, their fathers, I should say. Um, and then, uh, it, but you could also like, I remember her when she was like, when Cyanite was talking about going and being helpful on the pirate ship, she was talking about using her, um, powers in more subtle ways to produce like distracting effects, like fog, uh, like you know, lowering the ambient air temperature enough so that like condensation happens. And so just like messing with the physics of the world is what it kind of, once you like expand your, the character, their or, origins expand their consciousness between like, I just control the earth. You see like, Oh wait, actually it's all connected and we can control a lot of things. Yeah. Which seemed like cyanide didn't learn to do that until they went to that like Island with that other guy who's kind of like her, her boyfriend or whatever, like her love interest I don't know whatever he is you know how there's like that partnership between Alabaster. I don't remember that guy's name and on I think <laughs> okay <laughs> um like he taught her how to control like water because that wasn't I guess something she learned at the fulcrum mm-hmm. like why would she because apparently living on the coast is like the worst thing you can do because tsunamis and they just like wipe out places all the time yeah and apparently, I mean, if I don't know why they're not teaching them how to do that, <laughs> how to quell tsunamis. Yeah. Yeah. Like y- y'all need to expand your horizons a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> it seems like all of the way that like the magical system is set up in this current, like the Sansa empire, whatever it was, is all about like trying to control things and like avoid disasters instead of like right. maybe actually facing what's going on and. In investigating our prejudices and stuff it's like seems like the through line um and that's like hence where like the guardians come in like their very name just like it's about it, it seems exudes like paternalistic control um so they have powers to like dampen the origins and their what they can do with their earth magic mm-hmm. um and but they bo- so they both have these things called sesepine or something like in their brain stems. Yes, sepine. Sepine. All right. And I only know because I listen to the audio. Exactly. Like, cool. I know how to say all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> and so that that which is like, I don't some sort of physiological thing that allows them to like. That's what allows them to perceive all of the stuff that's going on in the earth, and they that was like a verb then to cess which so like this all this was very confusing to me as like at the beginning but then i guess i figured some of it out yeah like uh the word dusting instead of fucking i think and i was just like okay new words i guess yeah. <laughs> more new words rusting i think a oh, rusting that's what it was yeah 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 and i was just like all right i guess <laughs> father earth instead of mother earth Oh, was it? I don't remember yeah. that. Oh, that's gross. And then I also wrote <laughs> obelisks, question mark, question mark, question mark. So that's there too. What are the obelisks? What are the stone eaters? Not really sure. Probably next book. I think one of them is called The Obelisk Gate is one of the books in the series. Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I can't remember if that's the last one. Either way, don't know what the obelisks are all about. There's some power there. Maybe at the end, Alabaster has like a ring or something made from one. I don't know. <laughs> we have more questions than answers in this in this uh, episode, everyone. Yes, yeah, stone eaters. What do they do? They can Not like really sure. they they have some power though. Yeah, <laughs> I was actually most interested in these char- in the stone eater yeah. characters. I was I'm like, like <laughs> no, I want the magical be- no the magic magic ones. <laughs> yeah, the top of the tier magical <laughs> beings. I want to know about those people. Right, exactly. I want to know about the super weird, strange, inhuman, other than human magic. Yeah, because I'm like, are the 
origins they're still humans obviously i think because like yes. they are born of humans but then the stone eaters i'm like i don't even like are these aliens like is this fantasy or is this science fiction no idea no idea i guess we'll just have to read the wikipedia summary to find out jesse yeah <laughs> that is probably what i will do <laughs> <laughs> because that way you'll know what happens i'll know what happens and then no more questions wands <laughs> away now we're going to talk about conflict villains uh good and evil in our segment get me kylo ren there's just a lot going on here not really <laughs> sure who the good guys are or the bad guys like maybe the government's bad because they're like taking these children the origins and like making them go to the school and then forcing them to use their powers to like keep the world going the guardians also seem bad because they're like killing people and super into having all this control maybe we're gonna find out the origins are bad or the stony like i have no idea how anything in this world functions so i don't know who the bad guys are for real um the government and the guardians are obviously bad because they're like taking children and like torturing them mm -hmm. to like and murdering keep them. the earth going. And I'm like, just just let the earth die. Sorry. You all just have to die now. Like it's not worth murdering children. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna go with the government and the guardians. They're bad. <laughs> yep. <laughs> going off of that, I would say ignorance and scapegoating. Fear like those sorts of like the fear, hatred, and the actions that come out of that, you know, with the scarcity mindset, which it makes sense because it's like this apocalyptic world where scarcity is thrust upon you all the time. So I guess I like, mm -hmm. uh, like it's not capitalism. So that's kind of interesting to see it in a different way. But yeah, because it's like an actual sca like scarcity mindset, except that you need to be worried about it because like things are scarce. Exactly. <laughs> not like, yeah, not like falsely scarce. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> not just like hoarded by the one by the wealthy um so like the scapegoating the most obvious and i thought like this the thing that i had the most visceral reaction to is when asun's husband jija uh kills his two-year-old son his three-year-old son uche uh that was horrible and just like oh i i thought that the like the, the fallout grief was represented um you know pr well in as from like Asun's part of view, point of view. And I mean, once we put it all together, we realize it's not the first child that she's had that's died. So, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Ignorance, scapegoating? Yeah, 100% for sure. And I think we also see Psy Knight kind of trying to protect her children, obviously. And that becomes like harder and harder, obviously, as the story goes on. At the the part where she is cyanite she kills her child um because she doesn't want her kid to be taken and tortured and like have this terrible life because they're so powerful and we see this has actually happened with a lot of alabaster's children as well because he's so powerful so there's a lot going on here especially like in terms of child abuse and child murder um yeah, it was a lot. Yeah, that part was a lot. Mm -hmm. I took a break for like a day after reading that, after getting to that scene and like putting some things to get, like having those like epiphany moments like Cyanide is having. I thought that was done. Mm -hmm. That was done well. Um, for sure. Ugh, yeah, very lots of heavy stuff in this book for sure. Yeah. Um, I won't, I'm also going to throw some bad pedagogy in the Get Me Kylo Red section. The scene with Demaya and her guardian when he breaks her hand, I was like, I would fucking kill you. <laughs> like, oh my God. There's like one part later where cyanide hand twinges and that's when I realized they were the same person. I was like, oh, oh I get it. I see what's going on here. <laughs> For like flip. one part in this story, I was like, oh, I get it. I understand something. <laughs> Maybe I was... Um, reading too fast and so missed that part because i wanted to read the other book haul books that i had just arrived on my doorstep <laughs> while i was literally 150 pages into this novel sometimes you just gotta finish something so you can move on to something else yep <laughs> but yeah the guardians are terrible and trash and like 
I'm going to assume that maybe Essun's going to kill them all or something. Like, that is my hope for her. <laughs> because that is my answer to everything. <laughs> Just, like, have, like, make it the Punisher. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, Kylo Ren. Just kill them all and be done with it. <laughs> <sighs> Onward, magical friends. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, gender, and ability. This is our segment about... Lainey! (laughs) (laughs) This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. All right. Do you want to talk about race? I think I wrote nothing in this whole section. No, you did. (laughs) Oh, I did. Okay, I wrote about class. I got something. Yeah, yeah, you did. You wrote something. (laughs) thing <laughs> uh, so we see what i thought is interesting is that like race isn't not, isn't like on skin phenotype quite as much like there is that part but um for humans um and there are lots of different phenotypes hair texture facial features height build skin color all of that included it maps onto geographic uh location as far as like close or far to the equator of this magical world um so I thought I appreciated that everyone was described and all that shit. Um, it seemed like more of the racial different, like quote unquote race as in like how we treat people and otherize them um, was between like the stills and the origins who are called like ragas, rogas. Yeah. Ragas as an epithet or an insult. Um, and I thought that we, this it lets us see how race is constructed. And you mentioned this in the world building um, segment about how alabaster when he's explaining all this history to cyanite that the fulcrum doesn't teach and he says to survive all the sands comms decided to work together attacking the comms of any quote-unquote lesser races his lip curls that's when they started calling us lesser races actually so i appreciate how it, like alabaster's teaching cyanite that these differences aren't like are um imposed by certain people in power because they want to keep power or take it away from other people. Um, pretty easy to make the connection to the construction of race, IRL, thanks to white supremacy, racial capitalism, settler colonialism. Also, stone eaters. Like, there's more of like a species difference, it seems like, with the humans and the stone eaters, and they eat rocks, as the name implies, crystals. <laughs> <laughs> they also move through them like water. I thought this was cool. They like can just like fly through the rocks of the earth that's a pretty that's like a magical power i hadn't thought of before that i thought was pretty rad yeah the whole earth is rocks so they they move pretty fast (laughs) but they like would go upstairs really slow yeah which uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i thought i mean it's just there were little moments like that that i thought were um that were like fun to capture I think it was hard for me to like wrap my head around like the racial differences because they talked a lot about like the hair differences for some people and like the color differences, but it didn't seem like it totally mapped on to whether or not you were an origin or a guardian or a still. So right, anyone could have ma- anyone of any race could have rate uh, have like could be an origin, I guess. Yeah, which we don't normally see in the books that we've read. Like, it's usually like mapped on like pretty like succinctly. So it was interesting to read a story where um, you could tell like race was obviously not just like they made race about something else, like you said, like about their magical abilities or the lack thereof, as opposed to like what their skin color was or what their hair was like and that sort of thing. Let's talk about class. Many of the like quote unquote class distinctions seem to be more about power than wealth, which kind of goes along with race. Um, the people who have the most magical abilities, the origins, but also maybe the stone eaters, and then the guardians who seem to have manipulated something within their brains in order to have control of the origins seem to have the most power, um, like because they control the origins. We do see people who are in charge of the comms but they seem to rely a lot on the origins and therefore the guardians who control the origins. So it was like kind of like the class seemed to be based on what, like where you lived, but then also your, the amount of magical ability you had and like the origins, like everyone hates them because they have 
all these magical abilities and they're scared of them. So they might be like the lowest class, but also the world does not function without them. <laughs> right. Exactly. They're like, I think probably how a lot of people see like essential workers, like the world doesn't function without them and we treat them the worst. <laughs> so that's right. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's like comms are a way of structuring society too. So it mm-hmm. like, little pods basically or communities but yeah, it seems like, like communities yeah like cities but they they could be as big as cities or as small as like little towns and and just it was a way but we still have like this empire or like feudal system almost with like the sunset empire controlling things um and then we see that there are other ways or alabaster is trying to open cyanide's mind to like that there are other ways places where origins are in charge for example yeah and so we see like that small island group where it's like all origins in charge at the same time i'm like maybe you all should create a world where like everyone has power instead of like just one group of people but like what do i know (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about gender one of the things that stood out to me is that um we have a trans character uh vinoff and tonki slash tonki is a trans woman she has faced discrimination in her home the capital city of Please pronounce this for me. I think it's Yumaness. All right. Great. That's it. Uh, partly because of being trans and partly because she wanted to study and learn instead of like marry and have kids. So we see um, Tonki as this character that um, we're seeing the intersection of like class and gender norms with this character. And I appreciate it. It was just like normalized. Yeah. It's a, tra- what a, it's a trans person. Like that's one part of her identity. That's not all of it. I guess this is a good point to also talk about the fact that the origins who were female were expected to have children, (laughs) like to have sex with someone they didn't want to and then have their children, which was also like, what, what is going on here? Because they needed more origins in order to control all of the shit show that is this world. Exactly. Like they needed the reproductive labor of mm-hmm. women with that sort of power yeah and we see that happening like with alabaster like that's basically how alabaster and uh cyanide end up together like he becomes both her mentor and she's supposed to like have his kid and he's like also queer and like doesn't want to be with her <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's like doubly like what is going on here <laughs> lots of complicated relationships this world is a shit show really. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk about ability body minds etc yeah <laughs> i don't know what sure why i put this in here but cannibalism <laughs> uh, i mean that has to do with bodies and right? minds and they're like <laughs> literally eating people mm-hmm. so like apparently that came into fashion during the fifth seasons uh which is uh, the sansa did it and they stole people and started like eating them and then like kept doing it even when scarcity wasn't around so it's like that was impactful for me Oh, I don't think I realized that they kept doing it even afterwards. So that's gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. We've, we, you, we've talked a little bit about these node stations um, that powered by origins who are too strong or too rebellious or quote feral to control. So like the children, we see it's like Alabaster's kid that's, you know, been murdered and abused and is in forced and like operated on and forced into like a vegetative state to you. And then they use their er- erogeny instinctually to quell seismic issues so they like take away their agency um yeah this is yeah and it's like one of those ways that you see like children being abused for like being children like of course they're going to be rebel you literally took them from their homes where people hated them and then put them into this group where you like control their every movement Mm -hmm. and it's just like and then they punish them for being kids. And I was just like, this is a lot. Yeah. A lot. I thought that is also al- the connection between Alabaster and his like mental health and him being described as crazy various times and like broken. Um, I appreciate how he turns this around and he, um, he um, is like correlating his quote craziness with his like political consciousness basically and is saying i've been crazy for years if you stay with me for long you will be too if you see enough of this understand enough of what all of it means 
And that's on page 149. And just how like that, I don't know. I think Mark Fisher talks about this. Lots of people are, you know, the, the relationship between, you know, our, if once you like figure out what's going on and have the veil lifted and how it can really fuck with your body mind. Um, and about that, on that note, Alabaster with all of the, like he can't unsee all of these like things that he knows, all of the power dynamics, all of the histories, all of the prejudices and violence and discrimination and stuff. And um, Alabaster, I appreciate how um, he's this like annoying figure. Like <laughs> at one point, Cyanide's like, she felt a weird sort of pride that like no one was more irritating than her mentor because he's like <laughs> rubbing these people who look down on them the wrong way and just like making them treat them like human beings. Um, so I really liked that scene. And Alabaster strikes me as this like killjoy figure because in his mentor-mentee relationship with Cyanite, he doesn't like keep, he doesn't let her keep lying to herself about, you know, why she, why they're in the position that they're in right now and her lack of slash like abundance of agency at the same time. And um, this is from Cyanite's exposition and it's a quote that I think is worth, um, I'm just going to read it and we can, I don't know, I'm curious what you if you have anything to think about, like say about it or I don't know. So this is cyanite. She says, not that she hadn't known it before that she's a slave, that all ragas are slaves, that the security and self worth and sense of self-worth the fulcrum offers is wrapped in the chain of her right to live and even the right to control her own body. It's one thing to know this, to admit it to herself, but it's another sort of truth to none of them use against each other, not even to make a point because doing so is cruel and unnecessary. This is why she hates Alabaster, not because he is more powerful, not even because he is crazy, but because he refuses to allow any of her, any, allow her any of the polite fictions and unspoken truths that have kept her comfortable and safe for years. It's on page 348. I like really appreciate this. I think because while, um, Sinai is kind of forced on Alabaster and vice versa, um, he is meant to be her mentor and it kind of seems like the kind of thing an actual mentor should be doing like you can't just live your life you, like things that maybe the other origins don't say to each other they don't acknowledge doesn't help them in any way so alabaster constantly bringing up the fact that like she's a slave to this city to this world and she doesn't have any sense of control like i'm pretty sure that's part of the reason she decides to stay with him on that island with the people who are like all the origins who are free and she doesn't want her kid to be taken and used at one of these like node stations because if she can lie to herself about it then she can easily stay and keep doing those things but I think it's like the sign of a good mentor and as a friend because I think we see them become friends yeah. that don't let people get like caught up in the way that things are like supposed to be mm -hmm. um and like let let like make force people to like live the truth of what the world is and like deal with that as opposed to like just going along with things for no reason really yeah exactly finally it's time for shipwrecked a segment about asexuality sexuality sex romance and relationships and sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own i don't think i ship anyone in this story <laughs> The relationship between Cyanite and Alabaster was interesting. They were forced together in a weird mentor-mentee situation that also asked them to have a baby together. Um, they grew to be friends in the end, but also held a lot back from each other. Um, and obviously at the very end, Alabaster is very upset because Cyanite killed their child. Um, so like, I liked seeing how their relationship changed over time and how it became less of this mentor-mentee situation and more of like a friendship. Um, I appreciated that more of like a peer relationship or where they, you know, have different, less of like a power differential in, mm -hmm. in the way that they interacted. Um, Corindum for the, his short life had communal parenting. So that that was kind of cool that he like basically grew up in a con commune and that cyanite and alabaster are part of this. So like, it talks about like cyanite nursing other children when they come near and then, or Corindum getting nursed by other folks you know so like i i liked how it showed this like other ways of being a family unit i guess um and we also get some poly representation some poly relationship representation because they're on the um 
island for two years or something, right? Maybe a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, so this happened, like, it, it's the implication is that it happens for a while. And <laughs> the first night we see Inon, um, like, described as attracted to, sexually attracted to both alabaster and cyanite. So it's like normal, normalizing queer desire, which I love. And the I thought the, I appreciated the sex scene and between the three of them and, like, the honest talk about desire, like how cyanide gets off seeing Anon and Alabaster together and same goes for Alabaster when he sees cyanide and Anon having sex, but like cyanide and Alabaster aren't into each other, you know? So I just thought that this was very honest and nuanced and it wasn't like all perfect. There were obviously conflicts like any other relationship, you know, but um, I liked the poly representation. Yeah. And I think it was especially good because we don't really see that like, cyanite or alabaster are jealous of the relationship that the other one has with a not like they seem to have kind of different relationships with him mm-hmm. so it was great to see like the relationship happen but also not like these um like i guess like destructive feelings around it was really nice to see yeah there wasn't like the possessive or jealous like trope that you see with polyamory mm-hmm. sometimes because i remember that like they were in cyanite in her exposition was talking about how like he <laughs> Alabaster laid on his side of Anon and she laid on her side, you know? So like they had this whole like situation <laughs> in their thruple or whatever. So yeah. I thought that was nice. It was sweet. For the short time it lasted. And then things went to <laughs> shit as they do. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. I think the biggest problem I have with this book is the way the story is told, which I've kind of hinted at a few times because it turns out in the end that Esun, Demaya, and Cyanite are all the same person and we, the reader, are following different timelines. This makes the story a little confusing, especially because I think Esun's chapters are not told in third person, but I think they're actually told through Hoa, who is telling the story as if Hoa is writing to tell Esun her own story. So the reader is following what they think is three different characters who end up being one person. And then there's this shift in the point of view. And it just, I don't think it works very well. It didn't work for me. Apparently it worked for like 5 million people on Goodreads who said this is like (laughs) the best book they've ever read ever. Even though they're confused the whole time. Even though they said they were confused the whole time. (laughs) It was really great. Um, So yeah, I just don't think that the way that the story was told really worked for me, especially because of that switch in POV, like, like literally from third person to second person was very odd and a very odd decision. And I'm guessing it might be because Hoa becomes so important later on, but it was just like a weird way to tell the story, I thought. Yeah, it seemed like it was content and form kind of trying to like coming together, you know, like the fragmented self of the protagonist and we see that reflected in the narration but that's like a really strange thing to wrap your head and feelings around as a reader the i i enjoyed the like the technical aspects of the writing i thought that like the turns of phrase and the like messing around with the different points of view and i don't like i it was the work of reading it was like kind of fun i guess but at the same time it didn't make me like feel big things despite some of the like really awful um stuff that's going on here and the we talked about this a little bit before but the abundance of paratext um segments from stone lore history at the end of the chapters and also the appendices that would would have been very helpful at the beginning i think (laughs) (laughs) or even to have a presence at all in the audiobook I feel like it's like a disservice to listeners to put not put that there. So they're not like we, they are not really getting the full experience that someone who's reading a physical copy of the book would get. And that's not really fair either. No. And I think also, I mean, I know people don't like read the acknowledgements necessarily, but I always read the acknowledgements. I like to know like what the authors like. Because I think that's like a glimpse into the process of how a book gets written. Mm-hmm. It's not actually just like a thing that one person does in isolation. Um, but yeah, I agree with you that it's like they get marketed as unabridged audiobooks, And at the same time, it's like you're abridging shit. Like, and you're also if we weren't having this conversation, you wouldn't know 
as a reader I would have no that idea. like that sort of information would have been available to you in a diff or is available to you if in the book in a different form in a different mm-hmm. medium so I don't know I just like I think it's shitty that audiobooks makes people so much money and it doesn't seem like they're really having a mm, like they're missing out on some of the people making them are just like aren't thinking it all out you know like how are you going to get the map there how are you going to get like you know like give your readers or your listeners like they deserve some of the or are you going to describe the map or something for a visually impaired person like what are you going to do to make it accessible because this is like i guess gets into like a question of access and for sure who is deciding like who's making it probably a bunch of ableds so temporarily because it's all temporary able ability like able disability hits us all or comes for us all at some point yeah i have a graphic novel that i have an advanced listener copy for and i read the graphic novel so i'm excited to see like how do you turn a graphic novel into a audiobook so we'll report back on how that goes because mm-hmm. <laughs> i am wondering like how do you get that visual aspect into an audiobook yeah and i know there's some other shows about audiobooks like reviews of audiobooks mm-hmm. have you listened to any of those or are you familiar with any of those i haven't listened to any yet but i should ellie as in formerly ellie the bookworm now velocirator um has recommended audio shelf me they're a podcast that talks about audiobooks and lis- listens to them and reviews them so um that might be a good place for people to like check out some yeah audiobook reviews Recommend if you like. Apocalypse stuff? Yeah, I kind of got kind of like Star Trek vibes for some reason. I think because like the world is just so different. Um, Plus I love Star Trek and like exploring new worlds. If you want something vastly, vastly different and want like a totally different world, then this would be a good one. Yeah. Also the time, like if you like this way the story was told with the converging timelines um the witcher the tv show was really great i loved it and i mean i maybe that's a spoiler that those timelines converge because one is going from the past forward and one is like already in the present and then we see those come together and you don't really realize it till the end um but anyways because it was two different characters, I think it worked better in that sh- right. show. Mm-hmm. But there are also books, so I don't know how the book goes, but people might like that as well. Or the video game. <laughs> Lots of Witcher paraphernalia. <laughs> <laughs> para text, para stuff. <laughs> Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way? Or did it make you interrogate a concept slash system slash trend that you hadn't before? As is turning into the custom, I have brought a few things and I will lay them on Jesse and see what they elicit for you. Okay, let's hear it. This is a quote from Asun on page 409. It occurs to you that the goal is survival and sometimes survival requires change. Just because the usual strategies have worked, building a wall, taking in the useful and excluding the useless, arming and storing and hoping for luck, doesn't mean that other methods might not. So this just like struck me as a, like a bit of a meditation on the things that humans do to keep themselves safe and how those are actually like enacting a lot of violence and how we need to like rethink what safety actually looks like um, and uh, togetherness looks like. So, yeah transformative justice plug etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah and also how that safety might look different for different communities as well all right i have another one this is in a conversation anon is talking to cyanite they're on the island um and he's talking to her about the fulcrum he says uh this is page 386 someday you must tell me what it's like there why all who come out of that place seem so very competent and so very afraid Ugh. I just have a lot of thoughts and feelings about this as it relates to like our school system in the United States, um, which I was immersed in for 25 of my 28 years before I got out with my PhD. And I think I'm like still figuring out like the recoil from that and lessons from all of it. Um, 
So yeah, but so very competent and so very afraid. You know too many things now, right? Of course like- you're afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Knowledge is fear, not power. <laughs> oh man. So anyway, that just like I've been thinking about that a lot lately. So this is this text me this um quote especially was like hit home for me. Good luck on your PhD application, Jesse. Oh my god! <laughs> Don't mean we'll to be a downer for anyone's in grad school or anything like that. Like this is all your bliss, Alabaster, because she is also a killjoy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she relates, but like one who wants the romantic life at the end of the day. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure it's realistical, but no, it's really not. It's hard. We contain, I contain multitudes. It's like, I'm a paradox, Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the library coven. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of pet by Awayake Mezi. As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you. Magical folks. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything you missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at the library coven. You can post or tweet about the show using the hashtag critically reading and the library coven. And you can contact us via email at librarycoven at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the library coven on the podcast app of your choice. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show and spread the word to other rad people out there. If you're able to support our labor financially, you can make a one-time donation to us on coffee. You can support us monthly on Patreon in exchange for minisodes, bonus apps, swag, and more. And you can support the show by shopping at our bookshop.org affiliate page. Until next time, stay magical. Kelly is recording on Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho land. Jesse is recording on Peoria, Kaskakia, Teonkasha, Weah, Miami, Muscotin, Odawa, Sac, Meskwaki, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Chickasaw land. <laughs>